Father in heaven, thank you for being in this place with us today. Such a great promise of Scripture that where two or three gather together in your name, you're there in our midst. Lord, that's true in conversation, that is true in worship, that is true in study, that's true even in the case of that Scripture in conflict. You're there in our midst. Thank you for your presence. And it is truly our prayer that our worship will be holy and pleasing to you, acceptable to you. Lord, as we come before your throne, we do so eagerly anticipating what you have for us. Today, I'm praying that you will show us who you are. I'm praying that you will allow us to see your character and your nature. I'm praying, Father, that when we see you, we'll be moved by you. Whether that's for the first time or whether that's for the millionth time, I pray we'll be moved by you. Lord, we have a lot of folks that are struggling with illnesses, with bodily injury, all kinds of different things. I pray that you will stay near to them, touch their bodies, and heal them. I'm grateful, Father, for the ways that that testimony has already been written in so many lives. And I'm grateful for your peace and comfort for those that need it so desperately. So once again, thank you for your presence. And now, Father, guide us as we move into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that Ray did already say hello to those that are out in the parking lot, but we do have several that are out there this morning that are battling with COVID-like symptoms, and so they didn't want to come inside. So welcome. We're glad you're here. And if you're tuning in later online, we are glad that you're with us as well. Welcome. About six weeks ago, Helen Cruz posted a, a quick little forward on Facebook. And it came during a time where I just needed some wind in my sails, needed a little bit of encouragement, and it was encouraging. It was everything that I needed it to be, made me smile. And I know that it can do the same for others because really for the last 18 months, maybe a little bit longer, there hadn't been a lot of wind in our sails. A lot of discouraging things posted even online, discouraging things that are happening around people all the time. We just need something that lifts our spirits. And this Facebook post can do it for you. Take a look at this. This is what Helen put online. Write a happy story in three words. Write a happy story in three words. As soon as I saw that, I was like, I like that. That is so different than everything else we're seeing right now. Write a happy story in three words. Helen, thank you for putting that on. Then I started scrolling through some of the responses and my smile just got bigger and bigger and bigger and my sails got more full of wind. It was just a good day when I needed it to be a good day. The very first response to Helen's post came from another lady in this congregation named Bev McGinnis. Bev wrote out her three-word happy story, and it was a blessing to me and I know to many others. I want you to hear what she wrote, but really, I want you to see what she wrote. She's in California right now. I called her this week and asked her if she would tell her story again by writing it out on something and taking a picture of herself. Here's Bev McGinnis's three-word happy story from California. I am saved. I am saved. Now that's a happy story. As you made your way down through Helen's post, there were a number of stories just like that. I am saved, directing people back to a relationship with God. It doesn't get happier than that. 
I am saved. Loved what she put there. Well, the preacher in me just started going crazy after I saw the initial post and a number of the responses. They had left my mind spinning in a lot of different directions, and, and one of the places that it landed was a fairly popular, it goes back a ways, but it's still popular even today, interview technique that potential employers use with someone that's coming to interview for a job. Oftentimes, they will ask the person on the other side of the table to describe themselves using three words. Hadn't thought about that in years and years and years, and so I wanted to see if it was still being used. So I went online, dug around a little bit, and found out that sure enough, it is, so much so that a lot of folks are still training people how to respond to that question in a potential interview situation. One lady in particular named Susie Welch, who is the co-founder of the Jack Welch Management Institute. That would be her husband, of course. She's also a television commentator, a popular speaker. She is a person that writes for business journals. She is well-known. She wrote on this subject just two years ago, and I want you to listen to what she wrote. The title of the article, What to Say When an Interviewer Says... Describe yourself in three words. Here it is. You want to present yourself as a seasoned, well-rounded candidate for a job. So describing yourself to an interviewer in just three words may be a challenge. Nevertheless, it's an interview question you're likely to encounter, so you better be prepared. Hiring managers don't ask you to describe yourself to get to know you better. That's what your resume, recommendations, and interviews are for. No, they ask to evaluate if you're authentic and self-aware. To deliver the perfect response, Welch advises job seekers to follow these three steps. Number one, describe how your mind works. Welch says employers are deeply interested in how you think and operate, and you should use one of your three words to accurately capture that. She recommends using words like conceptual, creative, curious, analytical, or methodical to describe your thought process. One of the biggest mistakes candidates can make in this situation is using business jargon. For example, Welch says phrases like results-driven or customer-focused rarely move the conversation in the direction that an interviewer wants it to go. Number two, reveal your character. According to Welch, one way to impress a hiring manager is to make sure that one of your three words articulately explains your personality. She says words like resilient, kind, and unrelentingly honest are all good examples of this. I had one applicant describe herself as a work in progress. Her resume had already made that clear to me, but I love the maturity it took to say it out loud. Number three, say something interesting about yourself. For your third and final word, choose something that shows you know what makes you uniquely you and likable while you're at it, Welch says. She emphasizes that the best responses are those that leave a memorable impression on an employer. That's why she says positive terms like optimistic, responsible, and calm. Phrases like, I'm a connector, I'm decisive, are all great for describing yourself. None of us can truly capture ourselves in three words, she says. We respond to this challenge with authenticity and self-awareness, and you'll go a long way towards saying all that really matters. I don't disagree with much of what she says at all. In fact, I think she's pretty spot on till she comes to this last statement. None of us can truly capture ourselves in three words. I disagree with that. So I decided to test it and see. 
I asked some people in our church to do that very thing, to describe themselves in three words. I wanted to see if they could capture the essence of who they are, and boy, did they ever. Three words. The folks that I asked about this poured themselves into this assignment. They labored over portions of it, and they came up with some great stuff. I would have just read the words for you, but it's better to see them yourself. Watch this. Man, those were some good words. They really were. And like I say, the folks that got involved in that just poured themselves into it. We want to invite you to do the same, to think through your life for three words that define who you are. Then take a picture and send us the picture and those words. For the next few weeks, this loop is just going to grow as we see new people that get added to that. We'd love to see what you do with three words that capture who you are. One lady said to me after first service, three words, can I have six? Can I please have six? (laughs) No, you can have three. Three words, just three words. See what you come up with. It is a challenge, and it's one that if you will really invest yourself in it, pays off in a pretty big way. So send us the picture, send us the words so that we can add that to the loop. I really liked Scott Granger's hoist me up. I mean, that that captures so much. It really does. So help us out. Keep adding to that. Well, I told you that the preacher mind in me was going crazy through all this. It wasn't just the prospective employer mind. It was the preacher mind. I got to wondering about three words that tell the gospel message, three words out of Scripture of great significance. So I went digging, and I found several different places that speak directly to this issue, just three words in Scripture that capture messages that we need to hear. So for several weeks, we're going to be exploring those together, and I hope you'll be here through this. It is really quite an interesting thing to boil down the truth of God's Word into three words. So we're going to be doing that. Now let's just make sure we're all on the same page. That doesn't mean that I'm going to say three words and then leave. You're not that lucky. I'm going to fill in some things around it. Let's start this morning with the one that I think sits right in the center of all of Scripture. More than that, it sits in the center of all of life. Join me in the book of 1 John, will you? 1 John chapter 4. Give you just a second to get there. This is the first of the letters of John. It's found towards the end of your Bible. If you need help finding it, go to Revelation, start turning left. You'll come to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John very quickly. 1st John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Listen to what the old apostle writes Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. 
It is my hope that the three words that set in the center of this passage, that set in the center of the gospel, the good news of God's word and of God's love, it's my hope that that just jumped off the page at you. But if it didn't, let's go back to verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, here it is, God is love. Three words. God is love. They're up on the screen. Take a look at those. God is love. Those three words, they sit right in the middle of everything. They sit right in the middle of not just the gospel message, but they sit right in the middle of the entire Bible. God is love. Read from Genesis to Revelation, and that's the message that you're going to hear over and over and over again. God is love. Sit down and talk to any longtime believer, and you're going to hear that same message. God is love. They sit not just in the center of, of the Bible, not just in the center of God's Word, but those three words, God is love, they sit in the middle of everything that matters to us. Because you see, when we understand God is love, when we get our mind wrapped around that idea, we find the answers for identity and purpose. We find a means of forgiveness that leads all the way to salvation we find the hinge pin of eternity in these three words. God is love. These three words matter. They matter. These three words carry the message that every person needs to hear. God is love. Those three words are so important that that last word in the, the sentence, love, was so difficult to explain during the days that the New Testament was being written that a lot of scholars and experts would tell you that a word had to be created to capture it. Now, there were already words for love in the Greek language, like the word for romantic love, the word eros. That already existed. Or then there's the word for familial love, the type of love that family members have for one another. It's right up here. That's the word storge. And then, of course, there's the word for brotherly love, the kind of love one man might have for another or one woman might have for another. Brotherly love. It's the foundation of the word Philadelphia, the city that, that we have named after it, the city of brotherly love. That word is phileo. Those three words already existed in the Greek language for the word love. But like I said, experts would say, that a new word had to be created to capture what John was writing about. That word is agape, agape, a new kind of love that people were understanding since Jesus' death on the cross, agape love. When John was writing his letter, that's what he was talking about. And he details it in verses like this. Let's pick up in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's agape love. Self-sacrificing love. That's the kind of love that is talked about in the Gospels, love that would send Jesus to the cross. There's a misnomer about this idea of God is love, though. And it's found simply by adding a few letters to the word love. And by adding those letters, you change the whole meaning. 
When people think about God is love, they typically think in these terms, God is loving. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God is love. The God is loving idea is an action word. Loving is an action word. And what it does is take the focus off of God and it places the focus on us. What God does for me. By changing the word love to loving, we change the entire focus of the truth of these three words. But if we will hold on to the original intent, the original way that it was written, God is love, what we, <clears throat> what we will find is a character idea. This is the character of God, not the action of God. It is the character of God. It is imperative for us to know this about the Lord. God is love, not just God is loving. When we change it to God is loving, here's the tragedy of that. We open the door for people to say things like this. There is no way that a loving God would ever send anyone to hell. Oh, that's a popular idea. Resurfaces every two, three years. Somebody starts writing on that idea and a whole bunch of people jump on board with them. There's no way that a loving God would send someone to hell. Well, when we understand that God is love, not God is loving, this is a character idea, then we will recognize that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell, but He loves you enough to make your own choices. God is love. True, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. But because God is love, He'll allow you to choose it. That's the way that works. That's the way that works. Just by changing this to an action word, we take the focus off of God and place it on ourselves, but then we don't want it to rest on us. We want to put it back on God. It's a circular thing that, that happens for us as we try to make our way through it. Rather than simply holding on to the truth of the three words, God is love. The reason we change it is it's so difficult for us to understand. It doesn't have to be, but it is. To understand that this is a character description of who God is, boy, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. I was digging around in some different scholars, preachers, and authors to see what they've had to say about this particular character aspect of God, and I landed on some stuff that John Piper had written, and I was really blessed by it. Because as he started out, he was saying that he was just studying this out from other people as well to arrive at the conclusions that he did. So what you're going to hear next comes from John Piper. It's not from me. I want to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. Piper says that there are four things that are necessary for us to understand the magnitude of God is love. In fact, he starts it with a statement like this. The magnitude of God's love is measured in the Bible by four criteria. Now, here's his criteria. Number one, the degree to which the person loved does not deserve to be loved. Now, let that soak in. Think about it. Read it again if you need to. Number two, the greatness of the price paid to love a person. Number three, the greatness of the good that is done for the person when he is loved. And number four, the level of desire that God has for the good of the one loved. Four criteria to understand the depth of meaning to those three words. God is loved. It starts to make sense as to why this is so difficult for us to wrap our heads and our hearts around. These four criteria are necessary. 
Piper goes on, remember this is, this is his research, I'm just sharing it with you. Piper goes on to break this down in Scripture beautifully. Watch what he does. Number one, in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, God loves the least deserving and therefore His love is greater. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God, different from all that, shows His love, this is what love is, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So the first measure of the magnitude of God's love is we don't deserve it. That's why it's great. That's the first criteria. That's pretty cool. Number two, consider the price he's willing to pay. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15, verse 13. This love is measured not just by the fact that I don't deserve it, it is measured by the price he is willing to pay, namely his own son's life. That's the cost. Number three. The third measure is the good that I get through this love. In John chapter 3, verse 16, that is called eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then He defines eternal life in John 17, verse 3, by saying it is to know God and to know Christ. So the greatest possible love gives the greatest possible gift, which is God Himself. Now look at criteria number four and look really close. Did God show this love begrudgingly or with all his heart? Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Goes on to say, we read the same response in the parable of the prodigal son where the father sees his son coming home and he hugs him, puts a ring on his hand and robes and shoes and throws a party, Luke chapter 15. In other words, God is totally into saving us. Nobody is twisting God's arm. I really like criteria number four. He does this willingly. God is love. Willingly. He exalts over his children with singing. Nobody twisted God's arm. Nobody twisted Jesus' arm. He did it willingly. God is love. Man, that's good news. That's the gospel message. And when we understand that it sits in the center of everything, when we understand that it sits in the center of our lives, it changes us. To understand that God is love and that He loved me and that He was willing to do for me what no one else could when I never deserved it. He was willing to pay this ultimate price for me so that I could have relationship with Him and know Him as He knows me. When I understand that this truth, God is love, sits in the center of all of that, I become a new person according to the New Testament. So do you. Every person that ever becomes a Christian and falls under this beautiful umbrella of God is love becomes a new person. When you accept the gift that He offers us through His Son, Jesus Christ, when you respond to the commands of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, when you respond to God's great 
love. You're changed. You're changed. Everybody is. And there is a natural thing that follows that change. Let's go back to 1 John so that you can see it. We'll start in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now let's continue on. Verse 13, listen to what John writes. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The natural progression of God is love when it touches a person at the heart of who we are is that we start to love other people. We start to consider them differently than we ever had before. These had to be hard words for John to write. This is why authorship in Scripture matters. If you go back and look at who actually wrote the words and you get a little bit of their history, you can see the significance and the power behind those words. And this is a perfect example of that. Because John didn't always see things this way. John didn't always see the need to love other people. In fact, there was a time in his life where John was pretty focused on John. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Join me in the Gospel of Matthew, will you? Matthew chapter 20. We'll start in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, let's just stop here for a second. This is the mother of John and his brother James. Earlier in Scripture, they are referred to as Boanerges, the sons of thunder. They had to be terrors for their teachers in school. The sons of thunder. Their mom comes before Jesus with a request on behalf of the sons of thunder. So mom's got her two little boys in tow, and she comes to Jesus. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. (laughs) I want you to picture this with me. Just just do your best, will you? This is a mom with her two sons coming to Jesus saying, I want you to take a look at these two boys. Aren't they better than every other one of the disciples? Can't you just see their giftedness? Can't you see that they're special? They're just a cut above all of the others, just look at them. Just look in their eyes. There are a whole lot of teachers in this room that know exactly what that conversation is like. 
In first service, we had a number of coaches from the high school. I don't know if we have any in here right now. We had a number of coaches from the high school that know exactly what this is like when a mother or a father brings their children up and says, now you've been looking for your star player. Here they are. I've got them. I have just been waiting for this opportunity to introduce them to you. These are my boys. These are my girls. Well, that's what's going on. She's come before Jesus and said, these are my boys. Oh, you're, you are blessed to have them in your presence. That's exactly what this is, is detailing for us. Now watch this. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Now he, he shifts this conversation to James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you'll drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Do you, sh- do you really want to ask this of me? Are you sure that you're capable of doing this? And they said, oh, we're able. James would become the first apostle to be martyred. And John would outlive all of the other apostles. He would be the last one to die. History tells us that before his death, he would go through some terrible things. We know that he was exiled to the island of Patmos, prison island. He wrote the book of Revelation there. History and tradition tells us that at one point he was boiled alive in oil and he survived it. He lived well into old age, passing the first century and moving into the second John buried everyone else close to him. That was John's lot in life. When he wrote the book of 1 John, these words that we were just looking at, he was an old man. Most scholars would tell you that he wrote it somewhere around the year 90 A.D., roughly 25 years after the Apostle Paul died, after the Apostle Peter died, 40 to 50 years after his brother James died, after a lot of other people were gone. The old man writes these words, because God is love and we have been changed by that love, we now love others. The question that we're faced with is, do we listen to the words of a wise old man or do we discount them? Do we throw them away? Hopefully we listen because they speak of transformation. For him to write these types of words to say, now we we just have to love other people. Set ourselves aside and love other people. He would do that because if if the scholars are right, if the teachers are right, and he wrote this around 90 AD, that's several years before his exile. Things were still going to get worse for him, but he was okay with all of that because of Jesus. John's telling us, John, of all people, John is telling us, now focus on other people and love them because God focused on you and loved you. It's the same idea that Jesus was driving home when he was cornered by a legal expert. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God and love others. And the reason for both is because God is love. God is agape. God saw you and said, I love you so much. I will do whatever is necessary to have relationship with you forever. God is love. Because of that, now love other people. You've been touched by it? Love other people. We do a great disservice to adults in church anymore because there are certain stories in Scripture, parables, if you will, even ones that Jesus shared, that we only teach in children's Sunday school. And then for whatever reason, and I don't know why it is, we don't ever bring them back up with adults, and we should, because the depth of teaching in some of these stories, the parables that Jesus would teach, they're so strong that we need to be reminded of them on a regular basis like this one. If you grew up in Sunday school, you'll remember it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. There's a lawyer again trying to trap Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You ever tried to justify yourself? (laughs) I have. (laughs) You you have too. And here, I'm just going to help you out. If you don't believe that you have ever tried to justify yourself, (laughs) you're lying. So (laughs) here we go. Verse 30, Jesus replied, Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Boy, we all need to hear that parable on a regular basis right out of the mouth of Jesus, and here's why. Because we show up in it twice. We show up in it twice. According to the four criteria that Piper would list to understand the magnitude of God's love, the first time we show up is we're the one that was beaten and robbed and left on the side of the road, undeserving. And everybody else could walk by us, unable to do anything about it, but then here comes this Samaritan, one of the least expected, that's Jesus. And he picks us up. And pays all of our bills. He pays all of our bills. So that's the first time you show up in it. The second time is in the command of the Lord. Now go and do likewise. What was done for you, go and do for others. Go show them me. And when we love other people, we get to show the love of God. His character. Because He lives in you. Show His character. Demonstrate God to other people. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. When you understand the character of God, 
when you understand the character of God, God is love. It will sit in the center of your life. God is love. Hold on tight to that. When you think of who God is, you think God is love because it is that agape that changes you. God is love. Say it with me. God is love. Don't ever let anybody convince you that you should change that or tweak it. You let it stand as it is. God is love. Those three words sit in the center of the Bible. Everything else wraps around them. God is love. In the coming weeks, I'm going to show you some more three-word messages out of Scripture. I'm looking forward to it, but they all start right here. God is love. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, we find truth like this right in your word. It shouldn't surprise us because the Bible is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. But the Bible also teaches. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And this is part of that teaching and that training. Lord, that we understand this is central to everything else, that we understand you. So thank you for your great love. Thank you. Father, I'm praying today that people that have heard about your love a million times might see it a little differently. And I'm praying that those that hear it for the first time might wrap themselves in it. And I pray, Lord, that they'll be changed. Thank you for changing us, transforming us, growing us, stretching us. Thank you for making us into who we should be. Thank you, Father, for your love. I pray the message resonates loudly with each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.